podcast. We're a pioneer church based in Loughborough in the UK. Our mission is to make disciples to establish heaven on earth. Well, everyone, it is really good to be here again and digging into James. Um, I loved Luke's intro the other week and then the, uh, the ongoing um, story in James is unfolding. So I'm really excited about coming to speak to you today on this. So just a quick recap for anyone who wasn't here right at the beginning. Um, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church, leading the people there after Peter had moved on to go and plant churches all around the area. And during his leadership, it's really interesting, he, he led for 20 years before he was actually um, he was murdered. <laughs> he, um, but during that time, the church was suffering poverty, famine, and persecution. And they were living through really tough times. Often we feel like we're living in tough times, and it's good to go back to Scripture and recognize we're not alone in that journey. And these guys, and this letter is written right into a challenging season for the church. And it is a stunning letter, and it's, it's to all believers. It's not just to the church in Jerusalem. And James doesn't spend his time in this letter with explanations of theology like Paul might do, um, or kind of explaining new teachings, but he reminds the church of the wisdom that's found in the foundational teachings of Jesus. And the words from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and also Going back, the, the book of James is often feels like a modern or more modern take on the book of Proverbs. There's such wisdom that comes through in his, his teachings. And so all these things echo through the book. So I just wonder as you read it and as you dig into it, just think, oh, God, that's like a, a resonant sound from something I've heard before in, in the Bible. And James's goal in writing this book is to challenge the values and the actions of the followers of Jesus. The book of James is this high bar to live authentically and to go after deep discipleship that will transform us. He's not interested in just sort of ticking the boxes or encouraging people to keep going. He really wants to challenge people's thinking. So be ready to be challenged. Just come with an open heart. Maybe right now you just might want to say to yourself, God, would you challenge me? You'll be up for that? Okay, so just um, let's go for challenge. So it's a punchy one today. And it's a challenge to our thinking. We're going to pick up on some key themes that uh, were so brilliantly read out by Nelly. So um, it touches on three key areas, favoritism, judgment, and mercy. So we're just going to touch on some of those today. And James addresses the issue of favoritism, warning the church not to give preferential treatment to some at the expense of others. Those with the right clothes, the right look, influence, or privilege were being given honor and the best seats in the house. Whereas those dressed in older clothes, they're even being asked to stand aside or even sit on the floor. It's kind of shocking when we read it, but this was obviously going on in the church, and James is addressing it. He's really quick to highlight the hypocrisy that's going on here, but he does it in a way by reminding us that we, the church, are family. We're brothers and sisters. That's the language he uses. And we're brothers and sisters together in Christ. That's our common identity. That's what holds us together. Not our background, not our wealth, not who we know, what we know, but it's being in Christ together that is what forms us into 
brothers and sisters, the family of God. So our shared identity in Jesus means we live differently to the world's standards. And that's the challenge that James throws out to these guys. Just two punchy verses to just bring up on the slide here is in verse 8, it says, We're called to remember Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. It's probably one of the most well-known bits of teaching that Jesus spoke. And that actually might be known around the world, and people don't always attribute it to Jesus, do they? You hear people sometimes saying, oh, you've got to love your neighbor. And um, it's really powerful, that language. And through lockdown, I think we discovered, didn't we, new ways to love our neighbors, to connect with the very local community around us. And uh, so I just love that he echoes back to Jesus' teachings here. And then in verse 9, he's super explicit. He says, if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin. There's not much wiggle room there, is there? He's so clear with us. What's going on in our hearts? But it's so tempting, isn't it, to want to be friends with the people uh, or close to the people who've got the money, who've got the popularity, who's got the influence, I've got a nice little picture of some people looking popular. There he is, the popular guy. Everybody wants to be near him. They've all got matching T-shirts, so this is the best I could do. If you Google the word popular, it's not a very good selection of images that come up. Anyway, there we go. We want to be close to the popular guy, don't we? And we kind of hope by association and proximity that some of the blessings and the kudos um, will rub off, rub off on us. Maybe some of the privileges they enjoy, maybe it's material or social status or freedom or opportunity, we hope that that will rub off on us, that they will make us look good. Who doesn't want to look good? I want to look good, but you know that's not always God's priority in my life. We want to have our credibility boosted. We want to be followed and liked. We want success. And maybe we think we might even be more beautiful by association. Now, maybe it's just me. Maybe I just think like that. But do you know what? I think this goes on for all of us. We can find that working in our hearts. And you know, worse than that, we can be guilty of avoiding or blanking those that don't meet the criteria that we hold of worthiness. We're often blind to the beauty in others that reflects God's glory and exists in everybody. It says in the Bible that he made us in his image. That's every man, woman, and child on the planet is a reflection of Father God. Who are we to say that you don't meet the standards? God says they do. So let's talk about favoritism a little bit. I love this picture. This is brilliant. Now, um, I wonder if any of you can relate to experiences of favoritism in your life. And I think we have to start in the family context, which is being shown beautifully here. These siblings, there's something wrong with that picture, isn't it? There's definitely somebody who's getting the advantage of a tasty bit of food over someone else. So, um, you know, birth order or gender often determines whether we are the ones with lots of responsibility or whether we get an easy ride. And it's not fair. Anybody resonate with that phrase? Yeah. Well, who does the washing up? Who gets the stricter rules? Who gets to get the freedoms and opportunities before the others? Now, here's my confession. I am the only son in a family of four children, and I'm the second born. So I don't get all the hard experiences of my parents trying out parenting on the firstborn, and I get the privileges of being the only boy. And I definitely think 
if my sisters are watching, that I had it easier than you. So what was the pecking order in your family? I wonder, take a moment, do you feel the one who was bestowed favoritism or had to suck up favoritism being bestowed on others? You know, it's easier to recognize favoritism when we're the one who's working harder or missing out, isn't it? We see it and it's like an injustice. It's much harder to see favoritism at work when we benefit from it. We become blind to the privileges we enjoy because they've always been there. But we need to open our eyes. We need to open our eyes. That for others, life can feel like one big uphill slog to overcome favoritism. Now, favoritism, what is it? Well, it is judging others. We place a higher value on some people than others. We make a judgment by looking at the outward appearances, the social kudos, and the potential gain we might get by being with them or like them. But God does not view us like that. That's the good news. God does not view us like that. It's beautiful in 1 Samuel 16, 17. It says this, The Lord does not see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is such a powerful scripture, one that I have to come back to time and again. We often think we know what's going on. We often make judgments. But God is saying, no, I see beyond what is outside of people, and I see their hearts. I see really what is going on. But we do. We all make judgments. And, and where does it come from? Just to touch on that briefly. You know, the values that have been embedded into our lives early on through our culture and our family and our upbringing, they dictate, don't, we, don't they, what we might expect from other people who might have different social backgrounds or come from different places in the country or from different nations. You know, do we notice and honor those with different accents education, income, class, style, or lifestyle choices to us. These certain qualities that we've been raised with may have been seen as worthy and valuable and aspirational. And therefore, it's not surprising that we then adopt them as our standards and judge people against them. But this is, this is the power of the gospel. G James reminds us of Jesus' words in the book, of Matthew verse chapter 5 it's the beatitudes and God says this hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him I love that God always loves to flip the narrative he doesn't look at the popular and influential and rich and say they're the ones I want to choose he says I'm going to choose the people that are ignored the people that are overlooked the people that may not have it all. And he says, those are the guys that are going to inherit and my kingdom and be rich in faith. So God gives the kingdom to the poor, but that's not who we'd normally expect it to be given to. So we, we need to check our hearts, really. And I'm, I've been doing this as I'm reading this, is do we default to people that are primarily like us, that have similar privileges and backgrounds? It feels easy and comfortable there. And it reinforces our worldview. Are we consciously or unconsciously excluding those who fall outside that circle of people that we aspire to be like? 
So James's teaching really uncovers our heart motives, and it's challenging. He wants us not to live as hypocrites, saying one thing and doing another. We might say that we love our neighbor, but actually we're judging them. You know, it's so easy. Why do they do that? Why do they eat that? Why do they live, wear that, live there, hang out with those other people, send their children to that school or drive that car? And we can go on and on and on. And does it happen to us in church too? Are we conscious of those that we connect with, that we hang out with or sit next to? Do we ever curry favor and look to get alongside those that might benefit us? And are we judging people? On, le- on some level, we all judge. And the challenge is become aware of that judgment and address it, allowing God to challenge our judgments and our favoritism. And the phrase and the sense I got today, and we'll, we will do this in our response later, is that Jesus is wanting to wash our eyes. I feel that Jesus wants to change the way that we see people. And we get so easily caught up in our own perspectives that we forget that Jesus doesn't see people like we do. You know, no matter how far we are in our discipleship journey, there's further to go in having Jesus wash our eyes, get rid of the dirt, get rid of the the blindness, get rid of the things that get in the way of us seeing them as God sees them. They are precious, they are valuable, and they're made in his image. That is God's gospel. So, we're to get rid of favoritism and judgment, but how? You know, in, in the version we read, it was from the NLT version, but I love the NIV version. The last verse of that scripture that was read out says this, mercy triumphs over judgment. I'll say it again, mercy triumphs over judgment. So we're to exchange judgment for mercy. And what, what is Mercy. See, mercy, I think, is displayed by those in positions of power and authority, and that can be defined in all sorts of different ways, where they could bring punishment and judgment, but instead they choose to protect the other person from pain and the consequence of their own actions. See, mercy is a little different to forgiveness. The two are linked. Often, I'm playing with these definitions a little bit, but this is how I felt like God's showing me today that maybe forgiveness sets you free, but mercy sets the other person free. You can sit with that and come back to me if you think you disagree with that definition. But you see, God shows his mercy on those who are suffering through forgiveness, healing, comfort, and the alleviation of suffering. He is a God who actively cares for those in distress. He acts from compassion, with mercy. God's nature and character is what I want to stake my life on, not my own ability to work it out. God's mercy is what ultimately I want to rest my salvation on. And you know, we want to learn about God's character because it helps us um, hold on to truth. And the best place to go for truth is the scriptures. And we want to just look at some quick examples of mercy outworked in the Bible. So, I've got a little slide with some scriptural references on. If you want to turn there, you can. Um, the first one is, now I'm really rubbish at pronouncing Hebrew names. If I get this wrong, is it Manasseh? Is that, is that right? Manasseh, thank you. I knew it wasn't right. Manasseh, thank you. So King Manasseh, he was a king of Judah. And he was recorded as breaking 
pretty much all the commandments, especially the commandment of idolatry. And he worshipped loads of multi, uh, loads of false gods. And this is horrendous. He, 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 even to the point of sacrificing his own children to the idol Molech. It's abominable. It's disgusting. And he's the king of God's people. So God removes him from power and sends him into captivity. And yet, Manasseh cries out to God. He humbles himself and he repents. And we read in that passage in 2 Chronicles 33, 1 to 12 to 13, that God not only forgives him, but he even restores him as king. Uh, It's astounding. That's the mercy of God at work. And the Ninevites, who remembers the Ninevites? There was a man called Jonah that was sent to the Ninevites. And they terrorized and mistreated the Israelites for generations. But when they repented, God spared them. He spared the whole city. And that really made the prophet Jonah angry, didn't it? He was, you know, we always read the first part of Jonah, but the second bit is Jonah in a real grump, sitting under a vine on his own, saying, I don't, I don't agree with what you've done, God. I don't like your mercy. It offended me. How dare you? Who do you think you are? God? Anyway, Jonah, I love him. It gives me encouragement that when I get in a grump with God, so there's a way back. But you see, this is what he says in Jonah 4.11, after Jonah's had a go at God. He said, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? That's the mercy of God. He's saying, I made these people. They're made in my image, but they don't even know their left from their right. How are they going to make a decision here? I'm going to have mercy on them. It's amazing. Incredible scripture. And one of the most amazing stories, I think, of mercy, and it's, it encompasses favoritism too, is the story of Joseph. Joseph was the favored son, was he not? He, you know, you look at Jacob and you think, what are you doing? How to mess your family up? Pour out a favoritism vibe on Joseph and leave the rest in a complete mess. That multicolored coat caused all sorts of problems, didn't it? It wrecked the relationships to the extent the brothers were set on killing him, getting rid of Joseph. But they deviated and they sell him into slavery, which probably wasn't a great deal of fun either. And Joseph suffers, and, uh, but God raises him up, doesn't he? We know the story. He becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And in that place of power, the brothers then later come unknowingly asking him for food during famine. Now, I don't recognize him, uh, but his treatment of them spooks them out. They're thinking, what is going on here? And Joseph hears them talking in Hebrew, which he understands, but they don't realize he does. And they're expressing their regret, their repentance of how they treated their brother. They're fearful that this is God's judgment on them. But then Joseph offers them mercy. I don't know if you remember that incredible scripture where he weeps and he basically says, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you wanted to kill, but God's raised me up for such a time. Um, it's not such times like that's Esther. But he says, but God's raised me up so that I might be a salvation for you guys. And it's incredible. So God creates a whole new story for that family. And that's the mercy of God expressed in that family's life. And in the New Testament, the story that I love probably above all the other, prod- all the other parables is the, the parable of the prodigal son. 
The son had wished his dad was dead, taken the inheritance, blown it, squandered it, and the father mercifully restores him to his family, not as a slave, but as a son. It says this in Luke 15. The son arose and came to his father, but when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Luke 15, 20. And this is the picture, isn't it, of the acceptance we receive in Jesus. You know, his death and his resurrection was the greatest mercy on our lives, that we can find a way back to the Father. No matter what our past, no matter who we are, God extends his mercy. As we think about mercy, I'd like to reference people much more intelligent than me and with more brain power. And N.T. Wright is an amazing theologian, and this is his definition of mercy. I love it. Mercy isn't the same as God's shoulder-shrugging tolerance and anything-goes attitude to life. Anything doesn't go. Anything could include arrogance, corruption, blasphemy, favoritism, and law-breaking of all kinds. If God was merciful to that lot, he would be deeply unmerciful to the poor, the helpless, the innocent, and the victims. And the whole gospel insists in precisely those cases his mercy shines out most particularly. So must ours. So there's this tension, isn't there? God hates injustice and he hates um, it where, where there is evil at work. Um, and so God, in Jesus, paid that price on the cross for us and for all people. If we choose to repent, then there is a way back. Mercy acknowledges the sin and in the context of repentance offers grace and a way out. I'll just say that again. Mercy acknowledges the sin and in the context of repentance offers grace and a way out. So I just, I want to kind of spend a bit of time reflecting in our own lives, really. There's so much in this, but I don't want to really unpack it more than we have other than creating some space for the Holy Spirit now in our lives, if that's all right with you guys. Um, You see, I want to ask you some questions and just start simply with this. How has God displayed his mercy in your life? You want to take just a second, close your eyes. How has God displayed his mercy in your life? As you reflect, you might be thinking about salvation and healing and hope and things like that. But there's also moments, aren't there, of mercy in our lives. When did you escape punishment and consequence? Has anyone paid off actual debts that you owed? in a place of real authenticity and honesty. Have you ever been let off a parking fine or a speeding offense? 
and felt the mercy of God in that moment. Has anyone ever given you extra time for a piece of work or a project deadline in your workplace or in education? And the mercy that is given to us through forgiveness. Have you experienced forgiveness from somebody that you've been really hurt by? Maybe practically. Have you had someone who's in authority over you, maybe a boss at work, cover for you when you've made a big mistake? Take the blame. Take the punishment so that you go free. So just as the Holy Spirit shows you that, I just want you to acknowledge that God's mercy is at work in your life. You might want to just whisper a prayer. Thank you for your mercy, Jesus. It's a powerful, powerful act. as we hold on to that mercy that's been sent and given to us, I want to allow the scriptures to challenge our vision and our behavior. I want to ask a few questions. Who are those who are marginalized within our own community? Where do we have people blindness? Where do we fail to see those around us who come from different backgrounds, who have different incomes or come from other places and cultures who see the world a bit differently to us. And that can be in the places that we work, places we live, where we socialize. Who is it that gets the attention or is given the profile and honor? Whose voices are heard? Whose needs are met? Who gets to lead? Are there people that Jesus is noticing that we have ignored? Maybe that's those who are anxious in crowds. Maybe it's people who are stuck in their homes. Maybe it's those who don't have the ability to come out for an evening or a night out or an event. I was thinking about the, the workplace colleges, maybe it's the person who sits alone at lunch hour at their desk. Maybe it's the neighbor that no one really wants to talk to on your street. So I know there's a lot there, and this is about the Holy Spirit leading us, not us being put under guilt. This is just saying, Holy Spirit, show us. And we're going to activate just in a moment. And um. I'm just going to pray. So, Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes to see the image of God in each person that might be coming to mind right now? To swap judgment for mercy. That mercy might triumph over judgment. Jesus, we recognize that we each have positions of privilege in different ways. 
Lord, we acknowledge there's sin and pain, and we choose to respond as you do and see the gold in others, draw out the best in them. Lord, we want to offer that to others because you've offered it to us. Amen. So I'm just, um, I've asked Joe to come up and um, he's going to lead us in some music here. And what we've got around the room is some bowls of water. And I'm just going to ask Nathaniel if he could fill the bowls. If maybe actually Dean, if you could get the water from that one and fill that. And there's one at the back as well. Maybe Robert or Ruth, if you could fill that bowl of water behind you with, um, fill that bowl with water from the jug. And I just felt a real sense of, you know, how can we respond? How can we respond, God? There's so much we can respond to here. But I feel like there's a prophetic opportunity to make a declaration that, Jesus, I want to have my eyes opened. I want to see people as you see them. Jesus, would you wash away people blindness? Would you wash away judgment and favoritism that I might be carrying? And um, the Holy Spirit will show us. It's not about loading us with guilt. It's about the Holy Spirit leading us into freedom so that we might see people as he does. So I want to invite you as Joe plays, just in your own time, there's bowls of water and some little um, towels there to dry yourself with afterwards. I felt like God wants to cleanse our eyes, to wash our eyes, to open our eyes. You know, all through scripture, there's baptism and anointing and eyes being opened. And I feel like that's, this is a moment for us today is just say, Jesus, open the eye, my eyes to the people around me in the places I live and do life. And it may be in our own families. It might be our own households. It might be our streets. It might be our colleagues. It might be in other social spaces. As Jesus, as we just wander around our town. Jesus, who are you showing me that I need to see differently? So, um, church, I just want to invite you to be bold and um, come in that place of humility and say, Jesus, would you show me? Wash away anything that is standing in the way of me seeing people as you do. So I just want you to be bold and courageous. Accept the challenge that James brings us. Do away with favoritism and judgment and embrace God's position and perspective of people. So in your own time, make a move. Bowls at the back, bowls at either side.